Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, we give you great thanks for calling us to this place. And Lord, as we embark on this Holy Week, uh, that our eyes would be open to the reality of uh, of how things are and what you've done for us and their implications for our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to talk about the centurion today, but even more than that, um, we're going to talk about people that Jesus encountered on his way uh, to the cross. And when you're confronted with all of that evidence, uh, when you're there, uh, it's amazing the varying responses of people who were there pretty much from start uh, to finish. And their reactions and responses are never uh, what you think they are. I'm going to backtrack a little bit before Holy Week because I want to talk about how we got to where we are today in the church calendar, um, how we arrived at Palm Sunday. Um, because if you remember, uh, there was, there's an event that precipitates all of this. Uh, there's an event that is the beginning of the end for Jesus. Does anybody remember what event that is? He does something, and it, it just snowballs. Anybody remember? He raises Lazarus from the dead. That's it, because if you, rem- if you remember. Um, before, uh, where, when Jesus receives word that his friend Lazarus is sick, it's just he and the disciples off. They're just kind of by themselves. And uh, remember, the disciples say, well, golly, if we go to Bethany, which is a suburb at this point of Jerusalem, although it's contiguous with it today, then you can still go there and go to the site where Jesus performed this miracle. Everybody back on the bus. Um, Then um, uh, the disciples say, if you go there, we're all dead. We're all dead. They don't like us. Uh, Remember, there used to be crowds of thousands and thousands, and there was... uh, Herod had already been through that once with John the Baptist, um, and um, he did not want to uh, en- encourage um, that again. So, um, I'm sorry, these people that just came in are a distraction to me. Um, <laughs> keep that baby quiet. Um, so, there's nobody following around, the, th- the big throngs of people are gone. And they, uh, but then Jesus says, we're going to go see Lazarus. And, uh, and they say, then we will go with you to death. And as they come into Bethany, uh, they don't even get to Mary and Martha's house. They are met by Martha in the city limits. And then she goes back and sends Mary back. And then finally they come in and uh, Jesus makes it to the home. And I'm going to read a little passage from John um, Starting here. When Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus deeply moved again came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you always have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Now, uh, if you go there today in the church, it's actually very funny. If you decide to take kids on a Holy Land trip, this is a good spot for them because there's this wonderful mosaic, and it has Lazarus coming out of the tomb like a mummy. And, uh, and in the down far left corner, there's a man holding his nose going like that. Um, so um, that's about all there is for kids there. So, uh, um, But Jesus has uh, gone to the tomb. And why was this such an amazing miracle? And why was this the beginning of the end? One, it had political ramifications. Because you remember, well, I keep saying if you remember. Maybe you don't. I need to stop saying that. Um, there were some who saw what Jesus had done, and it said that the chief, uh, many were going away on the account because of what Jesus had done. But there was another very strong reaction to Lazarus being raised from the dead, which was, we have to kill him. We have to kill Jesus. So big group of people saw the same miracle. One very decidedly say, whoa. Right, And those are the people who, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, Hosanna in the highest, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord, palms down, coats on the road. Uh, he is our conquering king. Let's, let's roll. Let's make this happen. Same observer uh, looks at it and says, we have to kill him. He's dangerous. He's got some voodoo, grigri thing going on. And, uh, and he is not of God. And we need to put him down. So that's, that's one reason why, uh, one of the implications. But the other implication, and what is, what's going on here, is that it's the beginning of the end of Jesus, because for the first time, Jesus really does set his face toward Jerusalem. He actually steps into the arena. Uh, shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. And, uh, and we probably respond, like everybody else in the story, that when we read that Jesus wept, we think how he loved Lazarus. How he loved Lazarus. And all of us have been in a grieving situation where we think that we're all right, we have it all together, and we step into the moment. And for some reason, just seeing one other person's face or seeing another person cry, it's over. It's over. And you begin to weep. Um, but what we find is that Jesus weeping is much deeper and much more significant than we might imagine. Because uh, we hear twice that when he had come with Mary, also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And then he weeps. Now, this Greek verb that is used for greatly moved, greatly troubled in spirit uh, is the same verb that is used for like a primordial angst, like a deep, righteous indignation. It's not that... Uh, Jesus was weeping simply because Lazarus died. We know, I mean, that's partly it, but that can't be the whole story. Why? Because we know that he, and he knows that he will be raised from the dead, right? Jesus knows that, Ra that Lazarus will live again. So he's not simply weeping on account of Lazarus dying, but Jesus deeply moved. Remember, he also looks around when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, caused him to be deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. If Jesus is weeping, what he's really doing is he's actually 
crying uncontrollably. He's he's inconsolable, he's sobbing, and he's angry. He's angry. Now, why is he angry? He's angry, even though it doesn't say specifically, but the scriptures point us in this direction. He's angry because this is not the way that things are supposed to be. Right? When we were in the Garden of Eden, everything was great. There was no dying. There was no death. uh, There was no um, cancer. There was no sickness. uh, There was no sin. Everything was as it should be. Everything was in a perfect state of existence. Nobody aged. Um, Everything was just great all the time. It was perfection. And... As a result of sin, we live in a world that is corrupted, and it means that we die. And death is a a reminder of our separation from God. And because of that, Jesus weeps because he's angry with death. And as he looks at all those other people, and he weeps uncontrollably, he sees every funeral that he will not be at to raise you from the dead. In his mind's eye, he sees Everybody who he would die for, who he would not be there to raise them from the dead. And he weeps again as he goes to the tomb. And this is the moment when Jesus finally steps into the arena like a gladiator. And he goes toe-to-toe with death and Satan. And as he launches himself into the arena with his face set, motivated by love and a righteous indignation against death and the devil, he's confronted by them. And what Satan says to Jesus in this conversation doesn't exist, but this is how I imagine it going. (laughs) I dare you, Jesus. I dare you. Because if you want this fight, I promise that I will bury you. I will bury you. And of course he does. This is where the great battle begins and the raising of Lazarus. And everybody thinks that Jesus is this wonderful Messiah and that he's come to uh, not redeem them from their sins or rescue them from themselves. Uh, But after raising him from the dead, golly, if he can raise somebody from the dead, think of what he can do with the Romans. right? In one breath, just smite them, get rid of them all, and finally establish this theocracy where he would reign as king in Israel, and Israel would once again uh, be, well, it was never what they thought it was, but, you know, I mean, it would be a lot better. And they had this idea of this political Messiah, and so he sets his face toward Jerusalem, and he begins the march. And the very people, the very people who in that moment said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they quickly join those who want them dead. Who want them dead. Now, um, I think that there's a part of all of us who think that uh, had we been around that fire with Peter that night that Jesus was betrayed, and remember, everybody took for the hills. Right? Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's kind of funny, but um, one disciple thought that it was so urgent for him to get out that he left his clothes behind. I'm out of here, right? I'd rather streak Jerusalem than deal with this. So he's gone, uh, and he takes off, and um, and Simon Peter, of course, thinks, well, I'm going to stick with him, and so he sort of hides out in the shadows. And uh, and there's a part of us that thinks, you know, well, if I were Simon Peter in that court, I wouldn't have denied Jesus. Or if I were in that great crowd when Pilate asked, whom shall I release? I wouldn't yell for Barabbas. I'd I'd yell for Jesus. 
And there was a French king who said that uh, had he been there, he would have ordered a thousand of his soldiers to come down and cut everybody's throat. Now, um, kudos for your um, initiative. Uh, yet, um, yet that's not the way that it was supposed to be. Right? God, thing, God works all things out uh, for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And that sounds like a very funny thing to say in this situation. Right. But nothing could thwart God's will from taking place. And so we don't see Jesus as just some suffering, innocent man on the cross, but something much deeper going on, which I mentioned in the sermon, uh, but as an atonement uh, for our sins. Uh, but there he was, and he's traded back and forth between he and Pilate. And even if we had been there, um, our hearts would have cried out for Barabbas. Even if, if we had wanted uh, Jesus, there's something in us that wants Barabbas. And honestly, Barabbas is the safe choice because even if you were thinking about it, well, what's Barabbas in jail for? Insurrection, Insurrection and murder. He's a bad dude. If you've ever, what is it, the robe with Anthony Quinn in it? He's a good Barabbas, a really good Barabbas. He's sort of slobbery and he's Anthony Quinn. And, um, and the thing about Barabbas is, is he's a safe choice because here's what everybody in the crowd knows and what the Roman authorities know. He'll be back. <laughs> We know the rate of recidivism in Israel. He'll be back. And, uh, and not just that, but with Barabbas, like he's causing an insurrection. You just pull some tanks up into his neighborhood and squash that thing. With Jesus, you can't do that. Tanks versus man who raises people from the dead? Silly. Silly. It doesn't work. And so Barabbas is really the safe choice. And even if your heart cries out Barabbas, there's a part of you that knows He'll be back in jail. He'll be crucified soon enough. And so Barabbas is watching all this. We really don't know what his reaction is, except, yes. So he's paroled, and he, he uh, makes off. And there's Pilate trying to get out of the situation. His wife has a dream and says, you got to get out of this thing. Right? I feel like wives are much more insightful in these situations than, than husbands are, especially as it deals with people. But like most husbands, he's like, Whatever. And he keeps moving forward, and uh, he tries to absolve himself of it, but how often, when the buck stops with him, he still tries to get away with it. But honestly, he still had the power. He was the Roman governor. If he had wanted to, he could say, you know what, I re released Barabbas, but y'all didn't vote for me. This is not a democracy. I'm letting him go, too. If you don't like it, too bad. And uh, right there next to where this is all going on is the Antonian fortress where the Romans uh, were garrisoned. And uh, he hands him over for scourging. And the fortress today has all been, it, you probably already know this, but the it, Jerusalem of Jesus' day is several feet below the Jerusalem of today. You know, it's like if you were to uncover the pavement on any road in Birmingham, eventually you'd get to cobblestones or gold, whatever they used to pave it with, <laughs> depending on your perspective. And... So you have to go down, but while you're in there, it's, it's a really neat place because it actually is one of the few places that looks and feels exactly as it did in Jesus' day. And uh, for me, when I saw it, it was by far the most moving place uh, because it, it becomes so real because there on the floor, carved into the stone, is a pie with individual pie pieces, and on each pie piece is... Uh, engrave something on it and one of them one of the pie pieces is a crown and what these roman soldiers would do when they would be someone would be handed over for scourging with a cat of nine tails which um, you probably already know is a uh, 
uh, several pieces of, of leather with sharp stones and glass attached to the end of it so that when it met the back of the person being scourged, it would tear flesh away with it. And the idea was, you've heard, uh, beat them uh, within an inch of their life. That was where it came from. It, it, that, that's what they were trying to do, to keep them living, but almost dead. And uh, what they would do uh, to break up the monotony is they would play a little game with this pie on the floor. And depending on where the lot fell on the pie is the game they would play. And with Jesus, it fell on the game of the king. And you can go there today and you can see the little crown that's in the pie piece. And of course, they put a purple robe on him and they made a crown of thorns and they pressed it down on his head and they began to mock him and spit upon him. And then he was released. He took the cross. Simon of Cyrene uh, followed behind him uh, with his two little boys. Can you imagine that? You've come up from Cyrene, which is a long way off, North Africa, and um, you've got your little boys there and on the one hand, you're trying to carry the cross with this bloody criminal, and uh, you know you've got your best clothes on, not to make light of it, but you really you don't know how quite to do this, and you're trying to keep an eye on your boys in this packed place. Have you ever taken your kids to even someplace like Disney World, and you blink, like they're gone. The next thing you know, you see them up on the Dumbo ride, woo! You know, I mean, it's you, you just don't. And so he's trying to watch his his boys, Rufus and Alexander, and uh, carry the cross, and he wants no part of it. And everybody's watching this. And as the soldiers walk him up uh, the hill to Calvary, they finally nail him to the cross. And um, we don't know who did it, but there up there is the centurion who would have been an officer. He would have had lots of soldiers underneath of him. And his job was to basically oversee the execution. It is possible that he had been there from first, from beginning to end, that he oversaw the whole entire thing. And it may have been him, in fact, that nailed Jesus to the cross. Uh, one of the most powerful scenes in Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, if, um, if you've not seen it, this is a good week to see it. Um, it's streaming on Netflix, I think, still. You know, with Netflix, you never know when the license runs out. And you say, I can't wait to watch that movie. Then you get on, you're like, ah, it's gone. Um, but last I checked, it was on there. And Mel Gibson insisted that in that scene where Jesus is nailed to the cross, that he would use his own hands. So the hands that you see nailing Jesus to the cross are Mel Gibson's hands. And um, that's true at so many levels. Um, that, uh, that that's a big takeaway um, that Mel Gibson saw is not simply um, the act of an executioner, uh, but in fact, uh, much more than that. But the answer to the age-old question that theologians still debate today, which I think is fruitless, but uh, because we know the answer, uh, who killed Jesus? You know, was it the Roman officials? Was it the Jews? Mel Gibson got it right. We killed Jesus. Our sin killed Jesus. Our sin made Jesus' death a necessity. And so he's nailed to the cross and he's lifted up. And then we have these two thieves. And of course, remember the centurion is here the whole time, who have this little dialogue, which we heard this morning. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. That's the centurion and the other Roman soldiers rolling dice to see who would, who would take his clothes home. 
And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was the sixth hour, darkness over the whole land. And while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So what you have is are these two thieves who are up on the cross, uh, sometimes called the good thief and the bad thief. I'm still looking for someone to plant a church and call it the church of the good thief. Um, That's a church I could get into. Um, And um, one of them, uh, thinking of himself, you know, he kind of acknowledges who Jesus is, doesn't he? Hey, if you're the Christ, bail me out. God, I've got troubles. If you could just help me out here, that'll be great. Save us. And uh, Jesus, the funny thing is, is uh, Jesus doesn't say anything to him, does he? He says nothing to him. In fact, the only thing that he said that uh, uh, before that was, um, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. But what this guy is thinking is, look, this, if he's the Messiah, he's got some pretty significant power, and surely he could call down angels. And, and I don't know about you, but like I'm looking down and I'm watching these soldiers gamble, gamble for my clothes. That would make me a little mad. Right? It is making them mad. And so uh, there's every reason in the world for Jesus to be mad at them, and this bad thief is shocked. Forgive them? Forgive them. Kill them. Let's get out of here. But the other soldier said, the other one who was laid up next to him uh, says, um, Do you not fear God since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, and this man has done nothing wrong. Just remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus assures him that that will be the case. Well, uh, I mean, if you think that you have to take a lot of time witnessing to someone to become a Christian, you know, two two verses, um, where just by seeing what's going on and hearing the words of Jesus and watching the way that he's interacting with the people that are trying to kill him or are killing him, not trying, are killing him, um, he's, he's changed. And what he comes to realize is that he deserves it. He deserves it. I know why I'm up here, but here's one who doesn't deserve to be up here. And what I need is the same mercy that you're showing these people who don't deserve mercy. And yet, by worldly standards, they'd be considered righteous. Right? They're the authority figures. And yet, here I am, up on the cross, uh, known publicly as an unrighteous individual, and I deserve to die. And as I look at my life and do an inventory, uh, I realize I'm getting what I deserve. I'm getting what I deserve. Uh, the only person to blame for the position that I'm in is me. And that is a huge statement. Uh, I still have people in my life, uh, friends, um, that uh, one in particular, which I'm sure I've shared with before because he's the example. 
And uh, don't worry, Mom, it's not my brother Christopher. Uh, <clears throat> uh, one of my best friends from high school um, was uh, has been off to rehab several times. Uh, one time when he was off at rehab, he uh, had one of the nurses fall in love with him, and she helped break him out. And... Um, <laughs> So if you ever go in, he's a good guy to have with you, but, uh, but for all the wrong reasons. And so, uh, but uh, while he was staying with us one time, uh, he had been in our town for just over 24 hours, and I had to go uh, retrieve him from the police because he had gotten into a bar fight. And as I was driving him home from the hospital, uh, I didn't say anything. And he just looked at me and he said, why do these things always happen to me? <laughs> and I just thought, Really? I mean, really? Really? So even in situations where our, it ought to be perfectly clear that we ourselves have gotten us into the situation we're in, it's, it's not always clear. It's not always clear. But when our lives are held up to the perfection of Jesus, it becomes clear when God removes the blinders from our eyes and we're able to... I kind of felt like I was on like the Gaither Gospel Hour with the music in the background there, and I kind of <laughs> wanted to, you know... And if you call now. Um, <laughs> but our eyes are open to who we really are. That, as the old prayer book used to say, we are miserable offenders. And that there's no health in us. And all we can do is cry out for mercy. And, and Jesus doesn't say uh, to, the, to the thief, well, let me ask you some questions. Uh, let me just make sure that, that, that you've, you've got it all, all clear. Uh, you know, we're going to need to get you in the new members class. Um, or, or here's your pledge card. Uh, no, Jesus simply assures him in this simple act of faith. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The gospel is not, is not complicated. Uh, it simply is crying out for mercy and receiving by faith uh, that which Jesus has done for you. And Jesus dies. Jesus dies, and normally what would happen is by crucifixion, you would die by suffocation um, if you died. Uh, but often, uh, you it wasn't that fast. It was agonizing. So what the Romans would do is they would come along and they would break your legs and uh, so that you could know, because the only way to breathe was to push yourself up by your legs uh, to be able to take a breath of air, and then you would hang back down and it would contract you. So um, the Romans would come along and, and break your legs, uh, but that wasn't necessary uh, for Jesus. But just to make sure that he was, he was dead, uh, they speared him uh, in the side, and out came uh, blood uh, and, um, and water. And the centurion uh, sees uh, all of these things, and in the Mark version, um, it says, uh, Surely this man uh, was the Son of God. Well, if anybody could say that, it was the centurion. If he had been there from the beginning uh, to the end. Um, there were lots of people there, uh, even the people who called out for Jesus' blood. That at some point, probably when the earth started to shake and the sky turned dark, uh-oh, we made a mistake. And yet, that's always happened in the life of the prophets. Uh, if you were a prophet, you're pretty much guaranteed to die. And in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. And... Um, and so there were lots of people who thought this is an unjust act, uh, but the centurion saw it as something much more significant. Uh, he was taking in everything 
that was going on, uh, just like the good thief. Uh, but it really was finally encapsulated. I mean, he heard him when they're down there gambling for the clothes. He hears Jesus say about him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let me tell you, that's never been said before from the cross. Now, this was the instrument of capital punishment. It's the equivalent today of lethal injection or uh, the electrical chair. And, um, and so how funny it must have been uh, in the early church in the Roman Empire uh, for the cross to be a symbol of your faith. It would be like walking into church today and seeing an electric chair over the altar. You'd be like, that's creepy and weird, uncomfortable even. Uh, But for the Christian, that symbol went from being uh, a symbol of shame uh, to a symbol of deliverance, uh, a symbol of victory. And so here we are confronted with uh, the centurion who acknowledges Jesus as he is. Now, I I don't know uh, exactly what the centurion was thinking. Uh, Being a Roman um, and being a uh, polytheist, uh, there were lots of ideas about uh, the divinity. Uh, But at the same time, I think you got to take my man at his word. Right? That's not, that's not, I mean, uh, it doesn't seem to me that Jesus questioned the thief on the cross now, what do you mean by that? Uh, what, what, do you, what do you mean by, by crying out uh, for mercy? Uh, what do you mean by, what do you mean you want me to remember you? How should I remember you? Uh, and so too, um, God is working uh, in this centurion's heart from seeing it to beginning to end. Uh, and yet, there are lots of people who have heard the entire gospel message and seen it from beginning to end in a much more accessible way than uh than the centurion did and anybody else in Jerusalem. Uh, If you weren't in Jerusalem, and even in Jerusalem, if you weren't in the proximity of all that was going on, you may have heard about it, uh, but you may not have seen it all go down. Uh, But this message, the gospel, is so accessible that it can be found in every hotel room in America, right? You don't have to look very hard to find it. It's there. And yet... um, one of the things that amazes me, I used to think, well, if people just heard the gospel message, uh, that's it. But, you know, there are lots of people who have heard, like these people in our scripture, um, who saw what happened and yet did not understand and did not comprehend. And so on the one hand, this real historical event is held out for the world to see, Um, and to enter into and to be a part of this week, uh, to hear and see what happened to Jesus and what it means for us. And yet, unless God works in their lives, their eyes uh, will not be opened. And so my prayer uh, for all of our friends and family, uh, because we got a lot of centurions, uh, we got a lot of thieves, uh, we've got, everybody's got an Uncle Bob, we've got a lot of, I don't mean my Uncle Bob, Mom, wherever you are. Um, And uh, we all have... uh, a lot of Simon of Cyrene's. We all have uh, a lot of Rahab's. We all have a lot of Gomer's. Uh, We all have a lot of those people uh, in our lives, and we put the gospel before them. uh, But indeed, we pray uh, that God would use that like we poured out like water, that God would turn it into wine. And so uh, the last thing I want to say is be assured of the power of the gospel, and and don't don't get worried about it. You know, because I find that when people seem to be somewhat receptive of the gospel, I feel this propensity to follow up with them all the time. I mean, you want to follow up, but, but you know, like, 
I, I have to tutor them or something. And what we see here is God is in control. The Holy Spirit is going to bring them into the full knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for them. And uh, we don't need to be the spiritual arm of the sheriff's department or the educational arm of, of Jesus and, and beating them over the head. Uh, because in Christ, uh, there is freedom. And I don't know about you, I've never had to convince a new Christian to read their Bibles. I've never had to convince a new Christian to come to church. Um, I mean, they're ready to go. Right? If anything, you have to say, whoa. <laughs> right? Whoa. Uh, you know, I mean, that's the time to hit them up for stewardship committee. You want to do this? Oh, <laughs> it's, it's really a blessing. Um, but it's clear that, that, that God is in control. Um, but trust the gospel to do its work. Trust God's Holy Spirit to do his work uh, in their lives. Um, and so, again, we simply pour out the gospel like water and pray knowing that God will turn it into wine. Questions, comments, concerns? Kelly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well, we don't know what would happen to him. There's a similar story in the Bible. Remember when uh, Paul and Silas were in jail in the Philippian jail, and the Philippian jailer. Um, It's a little different, but similar. Let me just give you the real quick right end. Paul and Silas are singing and praying in the Philippian jail, and the jail collapses. The doors swing open, and the Philippian jailer sees all this happen. And if you're Paul or Silas, what do you think? Think? You know, we're out of here. Uh, and the Philippian jailer is about to kill himself. And Paul and Silas say, no, stay your hand. We're here. Now, if I were Silas, I'd be like, what are you talking Shut up. You know? Uh, 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 but... Um, the reason why the Philippian jailer is about to kill himself is he knows if there's all these people escape, he's as good as dead. And we find out he has a family because they all go home and they, they're all baptized. They become Christians. Um, but he knows that he'll lose his job. He'll never get hired again. And so he's just dead weight on the family. And he's better to them dead. At least he's not taking bread off the table, especially if he's not bringing food to it. So at this point, a simple confession of Jesus as Lord isn't going to get you in too much trouble, but what about when you have to honor Caesar, when you have to make sacrifice to him? That's where, it, that's where the rubber meets the road. So we don't know um, where that is going to get him, but it's probably not going to be good, and especially being a centurion, an officer. Right? It's not like, okay, I'm a centurion. I put my 20 years into the military. I'll at least get my pension, and I can you know, retire to some gated community in Florida. That's, that's not going to happen. Um, so the implication for it, if, if, if he's a believer, is it's the end of the road for him. He will have probably seen his last execution. And one of the disciples, whom I forget right now, before he was beheaded, there's an apocryphal story that the Roman executor, um, after, being, after being with this prisoner, whichever disciple it was, to the very end, um, had become a Christian too and couldn't execute him. And so he knelt down beside him, and he was executed along. The executor was executed alongside the disciple. I forget which one it was. I think it might have been Nathaniel. Jim. Can you comment a little bit about the veil of the temple? Yeah. 
Yeah, this is not a natural phenomenon. Uh, what we're dealing with in the veil is there was a veil that separated the Holy of Holies and the historian Josephus, you can read this, uh, actually described the veil and described it about two and a half inches thick. Right? So we're, not ta- we're talking like a, like a mat, basically two and a half inches thick and woven tightly, and he even describes the colors of it. So for the veil to be, t- like, no human being could tear the veil. It would be impossible. It's not like dry rot and it you know, had already torn a little bit and a stiff wind came through and, and tore the rest of it. It was a very deliberate thing. And, uh, of course, that was what separated the outside world from the Holy of Holies, where they believed the, the presence of God to be. And uh, every year uh, on the Day of Atonement, um, the... Uh, Yom Kippur, the high priest, or whoever drew the lot for that year, normally the high priest, um, would go in and sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant to atone for the sins of Israel. And it was such a big deal that they would tie a rope around his leg. So if he went in and he died, no one's going in after that man. Like if he died going in, sorry, dude. But so if he died, they could, they could, they could pull him out. They could pull out. So the idea is that we're not holy. God is holy. If we step in his presence, we're dead men. And that's what happened, right? That God shows up, people die. right? They shield their face. They're undone. Woe unto me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I shall surely die. <clears throat> and the veil being torn in two means God's presence is not restricted to a place. And it's not other. It's not you're out there. I'm in here, you're down there, I'm up there. But in fact, I've come to you in the person of Jesus Christ, and we're now reconciled. Where there was this huge chasm of sin uh, that was insurmountable by your effort, I've bridged the gap. I've bridged the gap. And now we can have a relationship with one another that up until this point was not possible. And if it was possible, it was still at arm's length. It was still at arm's length. And... um, so um, that, and I think, I mean, the whole idea of the Holy Spirit being in the world, uh, a lot of people say, you know, God is everywhere. That's true. Uh, but I like to think of it a little more that God is everywhere, but more specifically, God is where you are. God is where you are. And that, that's more personal, and I think that that's really what that means. Other questions, comments, concerns? All right, y'all, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this message that is laid plainly before us, and Lord, that you would give us not only ears to hear, but hearts to believe, that by the intervention and power of your Holy Spirit, uh, Lord, that we would believe. But Lord, help us in our unbelief, that even those of us as Christians uh, who struggle and are prone to wander far from the cross, uh, Lord, that we would indeed uh, be kept close. Uh, by your Holy Spirit, and that we might serve you and love you uh, and put our faith in your ability to save. In Jesus' name, amen.